0: Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Peter Hogan, a youngish man in long-term recovery, as I define it, a man who grew up with privilege in a what we would classify in our United States as an ultra-competitive, ultra-successful suburban area in a very... Um, high achieving area of Boston, Massachusetts. And he has a very touching story, but not necessarily as unique as we would like to think. So welcome, Peter Hogan. Thank you very much for talking with us today. I feel really honored to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: yeah, We'll get into our history together uh, and apart, but. It's good. good
0: Right. Right. I feel like I like to take credit for just the beginning of Peter's recovery story. He takes on after that. But Peter, tell us a little bit. Where'd you grow up? What did you do? Where did your
1: story begin? Sure. So I grew up, like you said, in a small suburban town. Well, it's not really that small, but small suburban town uh, outside of Boston. Which I'm happy to identify by name, but there's only a few that, that fit that bill. So you can probably guess which one I'm talking about. Um, and I think it's exactly as you described really competitive. Um, you know, if you're not sort of following a, a very particular path, there's a lot of judgment um, either being imposed on you by yourself or uh, explicitly imposed on you by others. And I think as I grew up and, I, you know, I got really into sports and, School and friends and kind of everything that a normal kid would, regardless of the way that they were raised. Um, you know, I was exposed to drugs at a really young age, and I think what's a really the, young age, Peter? I want to. First time that I is. use any mind-altering substance was 12 years old, um, and I was a little bit young okay, for my that's grade. That's a really so that young was, age. That yeah. was um, the summer uh, after eighth grade, so I was a year younger than everybody else. So I was always a small, a small guy, but um yeah going the year the summer going into freshman year of high school was the first time that i experienced anything like that
0: okay and what did that trigger for you what did your brain say that first few times
1: yeah you know i think there's a there's a a thing we like to talk about in some 12-step programs is that we discover alcohol and the excitement of amidst the excitement of life right and then that sort of relationship with it is, is marred by that false sense of uh, community and excitement for the rest of the time that I use. So the first time that I used was exactly that. You know, I had met some new friends. I wasn't feeling so secure in my identity. Um, you know, I, I tried like skateboarding and I tried pl- like identifying as a lacrosse player and I sort of tried all these different things. And amongst that sort of identity crisis and, and lack of community, I discovered drugs. Um, and that first experience for me was like, now I have uh, I have friends and I have an identity. You know, I can be sort of the guy that uses drugs, uh, the guy that gets high. Um, and I can have friends that get high and I can talk about stuff related to getting high. And now my identity is sort of sorted out for me.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get that. It is a denominator in any, high school really people who use have a community and people who don't have to come up with some other way to identify themselves right
1: certainly yeah I think you know being identifying as someone who uses is probably the easiest identity to own because if you wanted to identify as someone who got good grades right you have to do your homework you have to go to class all of these things but when you're sort of at a loss of where you fit in uh, identifying as someone who uses is is a no brainer, right? It takes 30 seconds to become that person. Um, So.
0: So starting at age 12 and ending at age, what age were you when you ultimately stopped using Peter?
1: Uh, It was 2014. So shortly after my mother's birthday in March um, was my the last time I used. And I was 18 when that, when that ended.
0: So you had a really compressed history yeah. of drug use. Yeah. yeah, tell us a little
1: bit about that. Sure. So my my first uh, my first use I smoked marijuana with some friends. Like most people, sort of begin their their using history. Shortly after that, it definitely you know it, it progressed quite quickly from marijuana to alcohol, and then into to prescription painkillers, uh, benzodiazepines, lots of whatever prescription drug really was available to me at, at any given time and eventually onto heroin, which was the last sort of step in, in pushing me to getting sober. Uh, it progressed slowly at first and quickly towards the end um, as my dependence on prescription painkillers grew larger and larger, you know, using heroin was the, for me, obvious next step. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know how specific we should get about sort of my no, history about- no
0: that that tells it that tells it how did your parents find out they mm-hmm. must have known all along that there was some experimentation going on and you know you lived in a community where that was pretty well accepted in some ways yeah. that teenagers yeah. do experiment um, tell me when they heard about the use of opioids and heroin what was that their bottom too? would you say
1: yeah. I guess to speak to the first thing that you mentioned, um, this was happening at, you know, I was a popular kid in high school. Um, I went to parties and I had lots of friends and I, I would consider myself, you know, a pretty social guy. And at most of those parties, probably my junior and senior year, there were people like openly using 30 milligram oxycodone, smoking it off tinfoil, eating it, snorting it. That was, you could do that in front of people at a party. Um, of fifty people, and it wasn't—it wasn't weird. I mean, in hindsight, that's pretty not acceptable for a sixteen-year-old to just, or a bunch of sixteen-year-olds to just be doing that uh, together in someone's basement. But um, it was very accepted in the community that I grew up in. When my parents first found out, I think you know they, they found out probably every uh, every couple of weeks for the better part of those six years. They found out something something new. Um, my older, my stepsister was an addict. And so they, they knew sort of what to look for. And I, I thought I was keeping it a secret for maybe the first like three years. My parents found weed. Um, uh, they found alcohol and things like that with minimal consequences. And I sort of didn't, I just assumed that they had no idea kind of what the level that it was progressing to. But, um, the first confrontation we, we had. You know, I, I talk about this with my parents a lot, that those probably aged like 15 to 18 is pretty blurry for me. I would say I, I remember factually that things happened, but I don't have so much of an emotional connection to any of the memories that I, I have from from that time. So I'll try my best to sort of recount what that looked like, but it wasn't a surprise to them. Or it was it was a more of a surprise to me that they weren't surprised, if that makes sense. They knew the whole time. I think um, they were more afraid to bring it up than anything. It sort of makes it real once that confrontation happens, right, before that it can sort of exist as this suspicion. Even if you see me doing it, uh, if we haven't talked about it explicitly, it might not be happening, Um, but it certainly was happening. So that confrontation was more surprising, you know, well, equally surprising probably for both of us.
0: You went to treatment. Can you talk about your treatment experience because where you in some ways are an anomaly Peter in my experience over the years is that we're not talking about repeated treatments and we're having sustained recovery. So can you talk about what your treatment looked like because I think it was a good model for you and it may be illustrative for other people as well.
1: Sure, yeah, I think I think I got really really lucky, you know. I don't um, I know for a lot of people that have a similar history to me, that it takes them an extremely long time to get sober and repeated attempts. And, um, although the first time I really gave it a shot, it stuck. And I think that's probably true for anyone. Uh, that if you really want to get sober, there's, and there's nothing holding you back, um, there's no reason everyone is capable of getting sober. Everyone is capable of, of long-term recovery, but the things that worked for me treatment wise, you know, I, I had gone to some shorter, um, 30 day treatment centers, 28 day, some short stays at, you know, detox facilities and things like that outpatient, but all of those were to please other people, right? There was never a time when I went to a, an outpatient in Boston and the gloomy fall weather. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is the life that I want for myself. Um, but, you know, I, I actually, I woke up in, I, I live in Utah, not far from where the detox that I went to when I I first got sober, um, just kind of coincidentally, but probably not. But um, I woke up in Utah, I looked out the window, I saw mountains, I knew where I was living in, in Boston, there was no mountains, so I was certainly very far away from home, and I was sent off to a wilderness treatment center. So I stayed there for 120 days, which seemed at the time like a really long time. Um, you know, I had a, I had a slip up. Well, I had a relapse. It wasn't necessarily a slip up. It was a conscious decision to use drugs again. So that's kind of a nicer way of putting it than necessary. But uh, during my, my stay in wilderness, after that on uh, March 20, 2014, After that, I went to a a 90-day, they call it extended care. I think that's the nomenclature that's that's commonly used, right? And in that extended care, we would go, you know, there's group therapy multiplies a day. But really the focus on that, the extended care at that uh, treatment facility was let's build a community. You get a job, you work out, you develop hobbies, you form a new identity. And that was really what was missing for me. The thing that I identified in my first use, right, is this is my identity now. This is who I am, and when they strip that away, then I have nothing, right? I haven't right. I haven't developed any relationships on the basis of anything but but drugs since I was twelve years old. So,
0: so how long did you stay in sort of a structured recovery program,
1: Peter? Uh, I think it was a, it was between eighteen months and two years, so quite a long time. Uh, well, you know what? Yeah. It's funny. It seems like that, but I actually, I kind of joke with. I have some friends that I went to jail to the treatment center, the initial one with, staying with me this week actually,
0: uh, uh,
1: and we always joke about, um, like how nice it would be to go back now, you know, right. <laughs> work and
0: what about <laughs> it? Yeah, <laughs> what about it was appealing? Tell us, yeah. because well, you know, think about uh, treatment uh, as this yeah. onerous thing. Talk about it
1: as the yeah. other and side And my experience before yeah. this was that, right? That everybody's there because they have to be, and we're just sort of in this uninteresting place with nothing inspiring to do. And our, like I said, our identities are stripped away from us. What made this this particular experience, I think, successful was of course, there's the emphasis on the clinical side and on attending twelve-step meetings and things like that. But um, the, the main sort of emphasis outside of that was on taking ownership of of your future, and by that I mean, you know, I, I, it's a mountain town in Colorado. Um, it's no secret um, that there's a lot of using and and alcohol abuse, and I mean, in every town in America, but particularly in the one where this this treatment center is located and they don't try to hide you away from any of that. You know, ultimately they want the decision to not drink and not use to be your own and on that basis you can form your new identity, you know. Uh, for me that was we went mountain biking and rock climbing, skiing, whatever, you know, the, the the season, whatever activity the season called for on a regular basis. And I formed new relationships based on the identity of uh, a sober person that enjoys the outdoors. And that got, that became my identity. And that's, that's stuck, that's stuck. You know, that's, I'm, of course, so many more things now as I've become a part of life. So
0: round but, out that picture for us. You just said, yeah. I'm so many more things.
1: Who are yeah. you? Yeah, well, um, I just finished like five years of school. So I have a two degrees. I'm, um, you know, I'm a boyfriend. I'm a I'm dog dad. Uh, uh, I, I'm a friend. I'm, I'm definitely a friend to my parents, which is a, after graduating college and being out on my own, you know, I've transitioned, I'm still a son, but I can be a friend now too. It blows my mind every day that uh, mostly, you know, the first thing that that I I sort of feel on a routine basis is that I have no desire to, you know, there's alcohol in my house. I go to parties with people that drink. I go to parties with people that don't drink. I don't do anything that I wouldn't do if I wasn't an alcoholic, except for drink, you know, Uh, I don't, Feel any desire it doesn't interest me it doesn't repulse repulse me it, there's no it's been removed from me entirely so uh,
0: <laughs> wow we don't hear that very often we don't hear yeah. that at the nugget of
1: desire yeah it's just gone it's completely gone so
0: so you don't live each day fighting back in urge
1: no no i mean you know and that that being said right there is a a daily reprieve based on the, the things that I do in my, my personal life and 12-star programs that I'm involved in. And there's some main you know, uh, personal growth required on a daily basis to continue feeling that way, but it is not what a, does that a daily battle. that look like? Yeah. That what does like, it look um, like? Yeah. So yeah. So for me, that's a routine of, of prayer meditation twice a day. These are all very straightforward things, and it's, it's funny. I think in early recovery i try to make things very complicated and personal to me and pursue these like obscure western practices or something but really what works is basic prayer meditation talking to my friends in recovery Uh, i sponsor people that's an important part of my experience as a sober person um and that's that's really the extent of it i go to meetings several times a week um, that varies depending on my schedule. I have one meeting that I don't miss. Uh, you know, there's obviously exceptions to that, but, uh, one meeting that I don't miss, that's referred to as the home group and, and a couple others that are good ways for me to meet newcomers. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people might say, I want to hide my sobriety and not sort of make it part of my identity. But I think, It is, right? And and ultimately, a lot of addiction is just an identity crisis and sort of battling back and forth with with who we are. So I find for me that owning it and being I don't, you know, you don't have to be my coworkers, for example, I don't have conversations with them about my sobriety, but if somebody were to ask me, hey, Peter, you know, I know I noticed you weren't drinking at the party. I'm having a hard time drinking or stopping drinking. That's why I, I find it necessary to be public. So at least to some extent with my my sobriety is. I can't tell you how many times in the last eight years that I've had people come up to me and say, Hey, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I drink too much. Can you give me some advice? Or can you talk to me? Um, And that's, I mean, that's amazing, right? That's, that's priceless.
0: Wow, what a gift that is to be able to take your positive experience and the growth you've endured and the coals you've walked across, and be able to offer somebody else something based on that
1: that's pretty uh that's pretty awesome that's that's really that's that was promised to me at the beginning of my sobriety that i will see how my experience can benefit others and i've certainly hung on to that through the hard times uh, because it's always been true regardless of what what i've gone through
0: someday this will be good for me and somebody else that's the mantra right someday in those moments yeah i like that so What advice do you have for those parents living in those upwardly mobile, competitive, high achieving neighborhoods across our country and maybe in the world, I don't know, who are assuming, quote unquote, that the kids are okay? What advice? Well,
1: yeah. Well, I think it's at least for my parents and and sort of It's, uh, it's easy to justify, oh, well, we're, you know, we're different. Addiction looks different for us because we're well-to-do and well-educated or in a privileged neighborhood. Addiction doesn't sort of manifest itself in the same way, but it absolutely does. The only thing sort of separating me from someone that ends up, uh, you know, sleeping on the street because of their addiction is that my parents have a lot of money and that's pretty, that's pretty much it. Um, my desperation, my desire to use the compulsion, all of those things um, are more or less the same, or, uh, you know, in, in every person that feels this way. But the I think it's really easy to sort of try to take control of the situation yourself and, and jam lots of different treatment options down their throat, right, and force them into all these different situations. I'll tell you, like, uh, I, it's certainly natural to want to protect your child and, and keep them from ultimately, you know, dying from the disease of addiction. So I can't say in good faith, leave them out and cut them off completely because that is not what worked for me. But uh, I would say that the, th- the thing that ultimately forced this to stick and I, I sort of identified this earlier is, is at least some sense of ownership of their new life. Um, I would say I I didn't pay for everything, obviously, I didn't pay for treatment or much of my cost of living when I got out, but the relative increase in responsibility I had for my own existence upon getting sober, I think contributed greatly to the sticking power. So for me, that looked like getting a full-time job immediately, working, you know, the first job I had was a janitor. I don't think it needs to necessarily be that extreme, but that's just happened to be the uh, the available position. And I had ownership, you know, I had I had a paycheck coming in. And for me, when I was 18, that was the first job that I had ever worked. Um, the first time I ever did laundry was after I got sober. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, most people might take for granted, but I didn't, you know, I had an experience. So ownership and responsibility in early sobriety are, are definitely very important. But you can't uh, you can't force sobriety on anybody. So, being patient and, and loving with you know from a distance is certainly effective too.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you, Peter Hogan. It is wonderful to see you here today. Um, you have touched my heart and once again renewed my faith in youth. So, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, um, some of us are okay at least, yeah. Yes, some of you are absolutely so you have all been enjoying Peter Hogan today, I hope on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you've liked this episode and would like to continue, please like us on our platform on your platform of choice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.